We're glad you're here. You made it through Acts with me. That's awesome. Uh, so we're in Acts 28, but I actually want to start in Acts 27 tonight at the very end of Acts 27. Because, you know, there was no such thing as chapter divisions when Luke was writing this. It just flowed right in from one to the other. And uh, boy, this, this opening sort of introduction to this goes right along with what Nicole just prayed. Because remember when we started out this series in the book of Acts, we said that the book of Acts is Christ's vision for his church. If, if Christ had a plan, a purpose, what he wants his church to be and to look like and to do, the book of Acts is it. And of course he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So if the book of Acts is Christ's vision for his church, then if we could sort of like narrow it down to then what is that vision? You know, one thing that you could summarize, it would be for us to always fill our vision with God. That's his vision for the church. Because it's out of our vision of God, out of our concept of God, out of our looking to Jesus and, and seeing him at all times, does everything else flow out of that? Because when we come to Acts 27 and Acts 28, we're going to be reminded again that our God is unconquerable. Therefore, when we, the church, follow him, we are also unconquerable, or to say it in a more positive way, as Paul does to the Romans, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us, you see. And everything that Paul has been through Paul is showing that he is living an unconquerable life. <laughs> that no matter what the Jews try to do, no matter what, you know, nature tries to do to him, he just keeps getting back up and moving forward with his God. And it is out of him walking with his unconquerable God does he manifest this unconquerable love and unconquerable hope that we see in Acts 28 tonight. But... I want to pick it up at the end of chapter 27 where it says in the very last phrase of the last verse, in this way all were brought safely to land. I want us to focus on the word safely there but then be reminded how were they all brought safely to land? And let's remember the ship had broken up. There were 276 souls on board including Paul and Luke and some others and God had told Paul through an angel that all would be saved, the ship would be lost, but that all would be saved. And so now all 276, the prisoners, the sailors, and the Roman you know, guards and soldiers and all that that were on the boat together, all of them are going to land safely, right? But you'll notice there at the end of chapter 27 what's happening. It's sort of every man for himself. Those that could swim, obviously the boat was close enough when it broke up, they swam the land, but then notice it also says that those that couldn't swim just began to grab like pieces of the ship and, and stuff to float on to get to land. But the bottom line is at the end of chapter 27, they all got there safely, safely, okay? Then we pick it up in chapter 28 where Luke writes, when we reached the shore safely, we learned that we had landed on an island called Malta. There again is the word safely 
The first thing that, that I see here is that God wants his people to always know that he is our safety, he is our security, he is our protection. Oh, and by the way, he's trustworthy, reliable, and dependable because he promised Paul that all 276 would land safely, and they did, you see. They did. Now, very interestingly, where they land, this island called Malta in the Hebrew means refuge. And it so reminded me of Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. And certainly what Paul went through, there again, God was his refuge. God was his safety. God was his security. God was his stability. God wants us to know that tonight as well. But it doesn't mean, as we've been learning through the book of Acts, even with Paul, that just because I'm in God's will doesn't mean I'm not going to go through some storms. Just because I'm in God's will doesn't mean I might not even be in a shipwreck. In fact, remember, when Paul was talking about his life experiences, not only was he stoned multiple times, he tells people he was actually shipwrecked three times. This wasn't the only time he was in a shipwreck. In fact, the one time he was floating around in the ocean all evening, unlike this time. So this isn't the only time that Paul went through this, which again directs me back to the last phrase of chapter 27 when Luke writes, in this way, we safely got the land. Because he's going to repeat that same phrase in chapter 28, verse 14, when he says, in this way, we came to Rome. And what's that remind us of? That God's ways are not our ways. When God told Paul, Paul, you're going to get to Rome one day, I'm sure Paul had no idea the twists and turns that it was going to take. You know, two years waiting on a trial, and then he, he gets there, and then he gets on this ship, and they have all these issues and all of this. And it's just like our life. You know, very rarely do we go from point A to point B with God, and it's a straight line. And very rarely do we go from one place with God to another place with God, and, and there aren't some surprises thrown in there, some twists and turns that we didn't see coming, where God wants to strengthen our faith, and obviously our faith is tested to see, are we going to continue to follow a God that we don't always understand? Because his ways aren't our ways. And, and we could say, goodness, and we're going to see this a little bit later on tonight, all Paul's trying to do, God, is your will. And he just wants to share your word and see people come to Christ. Yeah, but God sees a much bigger and broader picture than any of us do. And sometimes it has nothing to do with us, why God allows us to go through the things that we go through, and why sometimes it is in this way that either we don't understand or we didn't see coming that God wants to use, maybe not even so much in our life, but in somebody else's life. Could we think beyond ourselves sometimes that maybe even for Paul that this wasn't as much about Paul as it was the other 275 people that was on that ship with Paul? and even watching how Paul navigates this whole thing. Sometimes that's true for us. 
Sometimes the reason why God allows us to go through things in a certain way that we would have never chosen for ourselves is because God wants to use that particular season in our life to reach out of our life and into somebody else's life and draw them to him. So here at the very beginning of chapter 28, we are again reminded of the vision, the concept, the view that we should always maintain of God. Ultimately, our security and our stability our safety, our protection, our refuge is always to be found within the Lord. And we are safer in the Lord's will even when we're going through storms and shipwrecks than we are outside of God's will when everything is calm and there's no storm. So that's the first thing. But then you notice what happens. Paul and the other 276 land they're on this island called Malta and the Bible says that these people welcomed them they were very hospitable they entertained them in fact they built this huge and it had to be a huge fire right to warm them because Luke tells us that, that the rain began to come and it began to get very cold and of course they had already been you know in the water and stuff and so they were probably concerned that some of them maybe wouldn't develop some hypothermia or something but can you imagine how large the fire had to be to warm 276 people that had to be a pretty big fire but the bible says that paul pitched right in paul's that servant leader just like jesus was the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and so here's paul he's helping out by getting the the firewood and as he's gathering up the firewood, the Bible tells us that this viper, this poisonous snake, just latches onto him. I mean, it wasn't just like a nip. It says literally, it hung on his hand. And the Bible tells us in verse 5 that Paul shook off the creature into the fire. And we'll come back to the comments of the people there on the island of Malta in just a minute. But... I do want to point this off, uh, point this out too. This isn't the first time in the book of Acts that Paul's had to shake something off. Remember it says he shook the dust off of his feet when he left that town. Here he's shaking this creature off. And we learn that when you and I follow the Lord, the Lord will enable us to shake things off and keep on going. Again, when we keep him in view, to not allow these things to attached to us and to stay with us but to move past it to move on beyond it and to get past it and that's exactly what Paul was doing here in a physical but also I think in a spiritual way it's like nope because again God had promised Paul you're going to get to Rome and God wasn't going to save Paul from the storm and then from the shipwreck just to have him die by some snake's bite no that's not how God works you see and Paul knew that. And I think that's why Paul had such confidence that even when this, you know, Paul wasn't freaking out. He also wasn't doing what many of us might do in the same situation. Are you kidding me, God? You mean I had to go through the storm? We were battered. Then we had to go through this shipwreck. We barely, you know, swim to shore and we make it. And you can't give me but a couple minutes breather. And now I've got this poisonous viper hanging on my hand. You've got to be kidding me. It's one thing after another. Yeah, sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. But again, I think this is a great example that what was happening to Paul wasn't so much about Paul as it was sending a message to the people 
at, on Malta. Because notice what they say surrounding it. When they see this viper attached to Paul's hand, they say, oh, he must be this terrible sinner and he was rescued from the sea, but justice finally caught up with him. He's going to get his. And they come at it from the same place that the Jews came at it in Jesus' day, the same place that even many Christians come at it that we've got to be careful of. And that is when something bad happens, to one of God's people, they must have done something really bad to deserve. This must be punishment. Now listen, <laughs> certainly the Bible teaches that when you and I sin, as we talked about Sunday, that there are consequences. And there's even consequences to forgiven sin. But there are also times in our life as Christians where something bad happens and it's not because we did anything wrong. It's not because we're being judged. It's not because we're being punished. Think of Job and so many others in the Bible. Joseph, I mean, we could go on and on and on. And Paul here is the same thing. But that was their perspective. This man must have done something terrible. Remember the, the uh, family that had the, uh, the son that was blind that Jesus was going to heal? And his disciples even said to Jesus, Jesus, who did something wrong that this young man was born blind, he or his parents? And Jesus said, neither, neither. We've got to get past that mentality that every time something bad happens, that, that God must be getting us for something. That is an unbiblical view of life. But then you'll notice what happens. As they sit here and they watch Paul and nothing happens for a while, then they conclude he's a god. <laughs> they go from he's a dirty, rotten scoundrel to he's a god. Why? Well, that's what bad theology does. You see, when you and I don't have a solid theology, a solid view of God, a solid concept of God and who he is and how he works, we go from one extreme to the other, just like the pagans on the island of Malta. And that's what we've got to be careful of you see, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Well, it's not this, so then it's got to go all the way over here. No, no, it doesn't. And by the way, there's something that's sort of playing in the background here that I don't have time to go into tonight, but God is sending a message to the people of Malta that your pagan gods, your pagan deities that you worship are no gods at all. I'm the true God. The God of Paul is the true God, and I, as the true and only God, I have the last word in this. Not the viper, not the sea, not the shipwreck, but me, God. And he's my servant, and I'm going to watch over him, and I'm going to take care of him, and I'm going to protect him, and I'm going to make sure he gets to Rome. So that's what was going on here, you see. That's why I think God allowed this to take place. The Bible then tells us again how hospitable and entertaining and how these people just honored Paul and his companions and took care of all of them that had run aground on the island of Malta. And it even goes on to tell us in this passage going down through verse 10 that they just so happened to land in this area where the, basically the leader of the island, a man by the name of Publius, lived and he even entertained them for three days and 
showed great hospitality to them and took care of them. But while he, they were with him, they learned that his father was very, very sick. Sick Luke says, and he should know, he's a doctor of a high, high fever and dysentery. And so the Bible tells us that Paul, hearing about this, went into this man's father. He prayed over him. He then, after he prayed, put his hands on him and he healed him. God wants his people to know the power of prayer and that our God is a God who listens to prayer, who hears prayer, who responds to prayer, and who's a God who can heal, who's a God who can be prayed to for healing. And you see this here with Paul. Again, this is Christ's vision for his church. Who is God? Who is our God? Is he our safety? Is he our security? Does he have the last word? Is he the one that defines us? Every once in a while, we sing that song that Nicole introduced here. You define me, God. Not anything or anyone else. You. That's what God wanted to get through by having the viper latch onto Paul's hand. Your pagan gods that you think's getting Paul for whatever he did bad? No, sorry. I'm the one that defines life. I'm the one that watches over Paul. I'm the master of the universe. And then we come down to Paul having the faith in God to not only pray for this man, but to heal him as well, to be an instrument of God's healing in his life. And notice what happens. The Bible says, when the people on Malta heard what happened to Publius's father through Paul, all of a sudden people started coming out of the woodwork and the Bible says many, many people on the island were healed by the Apostle Paul. This is a great reminder to us as followers of Christ that when we seize one opportunity to minister, that God opens up a door for us, that it always leads usually to other doors of opportunity to us. That's exactly what happened here. Paul went in just to Publius's father to minister to him, to maybe comfort him, to to bring him some word, but also to pray over him and to, to heal him. And guess what? It opened up more doors. That's why you and I need to be led by the Holy Spirit as to what opportunities you and I seize because God is very strategic in that many times the one opportunity that we take or the one ministry opportunity that we take all of a sudden leads to other doors of opportunity for us as God continues to use us and to grow us and to strengthen us. And you see this here with Paul. And God wants us to have that vision of him operating that way in our lives. And then, of course, verse 10 tells us as they were getting ready to leave Malta after being there for three months, that they were honored by these people, that, that these people grew to respect, especially the Christians that were on that boat, that were shipwrecked. And they gave them all the supplies that they would need for their journey to Rome. Again, it shows us that, and we're going to see this later on, that the Lord, our God, is the Lord of hosts. He has all things at his disposal and God can minister to us or supply our needs even through others, even through those that don't believe in him like the people of Malta. And that's exactly what happened. Or think about the Christmas story where God used 
the wise men to come and bring their gifts, I think not just to honor Jesus and to acknowledge who he was, the Son of God, but also very practically to give Mary and Joseph, a very poor couple, some of the needed resources that they would need while they were living in Egypt before they got back to Nazareth. It's the way God works. My God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And God can use us to supply other people's needs. He can use them to supply our needs. But God is the one that ultimately does it, you see. And God wants us to see him in that way. Then we go to verses 11 through 16. They're not quite the Rome yet, but I, I, want, I want you to see this. This is a precious little portion of Scripture here, one that I don't want us to pass over. Because the Bible tells us, by the way, that Malta is just south of Sicily. So if you know Italy, you know, well, Sicily is just right there, right? So all they have to do now is navigate around Sicily and then begin to come from the south of Italy and go up towards Rome, which sits on the western side of Italy. So they're getting close. So that's what the first couple of verses, 11, 12, and 13, begin to show us is the little ports and stuff that they come to as they're going around the country of Italy on their way to Rome. But then it says in verse 14, again at the end, in this way we came to Rome. Now, Luke is so excited that they're almost there, that it's almost like they're already there, but they're not there yet. <laughs> but he wants us to know something about the way they came to Rome, just like the way they got to Malta. The Bible tells us that there were Christians in Rome who heard that the great apostle Paul was coming. And so the Bible tells us, Luke tells us, that they literally met them at two places, the Forum at Appius and three taverns. Folks, those places are about 30 to 35 miles away from the city limits of Rome. So think about it. These Christians, and we don't know how many there were, literally walked all that way to come to meet Paul and then to sort of escort him as well as the others like Luke into the city of Rome. I mean, it's like, here's this prisoner, Paul, right? And yet it's almost like he's getting a, a hero's entrance into the city of Rome. I mean, th these are the kind of sort of, you know, uh, entourages that, that military leaders and stuff would have as they come into the city of Rome. And here's this Jewish prisoner that, that is just having all these Christians get around them and, and, and come with him into the city of Rome. And notice what it says. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. You see, here's again a reminder of how important our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ are, how, how important, even from God's perspective, our fellowship and our relationship is with our fellow believers. Because God, and God wants his people to see this, is a God of comfort and encouragement. 
And even though God was always with Paul and God would never leave or forsake Paul, and even Paul said, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but Lord, you stood with me. But here now, God, being the God of encouragement, wanted to send some Christians out of Rome to meet Paul and others and bring them sort of into Rome with this Christian escort of all these brothers and sisters surrounding him. And Paul said, God, thank you. Thank you for these fellow Christians, for these fellow believers. I feel stronger, even. I, I feel strengthened. I feel encouraged. I feel comfort. I, I, I feel better knowing that they're with me here, that, I, that I'm not going to enter into Rome alone, that they're going to be by my side when I go into the city of Rome. Sometimes God wants to use us just as he did these Christians here, to come alongside of another brother or sister in Christ and to just stand with them, to be with them through a season or a time in their life. To Yes, God is with them, but God uses people to sort of represent him too and to add to the ministry that he has in our lives. And so that's true. And then we need to allow others to, to be the same to us that instead of trying to navigate life alone, in isolation, just bucking it up and, you know, just trying to go it alone, to allow God to encourage us and strengthen us and comfort us by bringing other brothers and sisters in Christ into our life, just as Paul, because Paul thanked God for them and took courage from their presence in his life. I thank God for the brothers and sisters that I have here at the Oasis who always, you all, encourage me and give me courage and give me strength and give me comfort. I never feel like as the pastor of this church, I'm out there, you know, all alone in this, but we are in this together. That is so very important in our life. And God wants us to see that, you see. That's the kind of God he is here. And so then verse 16 tells us, that they entered Rome. My goodness. Now think about that. Let's, three words. We entered Rome. But let's not miss how significant that is. Because even in those three words, we again are reminded, God is trustworthy. God is reliable. God is dependable. Why? Because God promised Paul, you must testify for me in Rome. And guess what? He got there. He might not have got there the way he thought he was going to get there, but he got there because he hooked himself up to an unconquerable God. And no matter what was thrown Paul's way, Paul just kept on moving forward with his unconquerable God because God wants his people to understand if you follow me, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And with me, you are more than conquerors. Nothing can ultimately defeat you. Nothing can ultimately discourage you. When you are following me and you are right there with me and you fill your vision with who, me, God, I am to you. And I will bring all the encouragement that I can to you. Sometimes it will be just me and my presence. Other times I will allow other believers to be a part of that encouragement and strength and comfort in your life. And I will be your security. I will be your refuge. I will be your stability. I will enable you to shake things off when they try to attach themselves to you. 
This is the God that God wants his people to see. So then it tells us, they entered Rome, and Paul was allowed to live by himself, but he had to be chained to a guard, a Roman guard, at all times. In a sense, Paul is given what we would call today minimal security. He certainly wasn't in a max security situation. He wasn't deemed by the Roman authorities as a threat. In fact, we've already learned through our study of the book of Acts that they wouldn't have even still had him in their jurisdiction had he not already appealed to Caesar. So that's why he's here. But I want to say a few words about the, these soldiers that were chained to Paul. Uh, we don't get this from the Bible, but if you read extra-biblical literature about the time, these soldiers with any prisoner, including Paul, would usually take four-hour shifts. So can you imagine being chained to the Apostle Paul for four straight hours, what that was like? Can you imagine the witnessing opportunities that Paul got? Because these guys can't leave Paul. They can't unchain themselves to Paul. That, that's their duty. They got to stay there, and they got to chain themselves to Paul for four solid hours. So you think about it. So soldier, four hours, 24 hours in it. Six soldiers every day get chained to Paul. Wow. What witnessing Paul was able to do. Which leads us to this last section. Even though it's the largest, I'm going to not spend as much time there. Let's go down to verse 17 through verse 31. Just a couple things I want to point out. After three days, the Bible tells us in verse 17, Paul calls for the Jewish leaders in Rome to come to him. He wants to talk to them. Now, this is part of what I see as Paul's unconquerable love for his own people. I mean, this man has had enough trouble from the Jews, right? His fellow Jews. Why doesn't he just leave them alone? Why does he keep putting himself out there wanting to talk to them about Jesus? Because Paul has not only a, an unconquerable hope, he has an unconquerable love through his unconquerable God. Remember, it is Paul who in the book of Romans says, if I could, I would be accursed for the sake of Christ if my fellow Jews would open up their hearts. That's how much Paul loved his fellow Jews. That's how much he wanted to see them come to Christ. It didn't matter what they did to him, how much they abused him, how badly they treated him. He kept going back trying to give them chance after chance after chance to come to Christ because he knew Christ is the only answer. If you reject Christ, all that you're looking forward to is a Christless eternity, and that's no eternity at all. So Paul calls them. They come. He says, here's my backstory. If you haven't already heard, and they say, no, we haven't already heard. Nobody's told us. By the way, at this time in history, it's estimated that there's about 50 to 60,000 Jews living in Rome at this time. So a pretty substantial group of Jews living in Rome at this time. And the Jewish leaders come to Paul. And notice what Paul says in verse 20. I am bound to this chain for the, for the hope of Israel. Paul's saying... The only reason I'm in chains, the only reason the, these sacrifices are being made is because of my hope. 
And hope here is not a concept. It's not, hope is a person in the Bible. Hope is Jesus, Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. The reason Paul is in this situation, the reason he's in Rome, the reason he's in chains and he's chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day is because he believes in Jesus Christ and he's not willing to back down from his conviction about who Jesus is. That's why. Because Jesus is the hope of Israel. Which is why if you go over to chapter uh, 28, look at verse 23, Paul is trying to explain to these fellow Jews about Jesus. And notice it says, first of all, that he is testifying about the kingdom of God. If you also go down to verse 31, notice that this is a central tenet of Paul's sort of ministry. It says there he's proclaiming to these people the kingdom of God. Why is the kingdom of God so important to Paul? Because it's only mentioned in the Old Testament three times. Because God, or Paul, wants these Jews to understand God's kingdom right now is a spiritual kingdom. It is a kingdom that is set up in human hearts. Yes, one day God is going to come and set up an earthly kingdom, but that's not what he's about now. Now he's about building a spiritual kingdom and he wants to set up his rule and reign in your heart. The other thing that Paul's trying to get across and why he is so uh, focused on talking about the kingdom of God is he wants them to understand I believe in a God who's on the throne all the time. I believe in a God who rules and reigns and who's in control. That's why, again, I'm not bothered by the things that come and go in my life and all the circumstances and all these different things and the shipwrecks and the stonings and the storms and all this. It's because I know my God's got it and I know my God's got me because he rules. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is the king. And I believe in him as the king and master of this universe. And so Paul is in a sense also expressing his confidence in his God and who he knows his God to be when he talks about the kingdom of God. We may not see it, but we believe in him and believe in it. But then notice also in verse 23, and in verse 31, the central focus of Paul's teaching, if you will, is Jesus. He says in verse 23, Luke, he, Paul was trying to convince them about Jesus using the Old Testament scriptures. And then in verse 31, he was teaching them about the Lord Jesus Christ. For Paul, it was always about Jesus. Always. Paul says, I count all things but loss. Philippians, except knowing Jesus Christ. Everything else, Paul says, is a liability in my life. Everything else I count as dung, as refuse, as excrement, except the knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord more and more and more. For Paul, that was it. That was of greatest value to Paul. And Paul wants that to come across to others as well. In fact, very interestingly, the verb trying to convince in the original language speaks about emotional energy. Paul wasn't just, you know, lecturing these fellow Jews and saying, I believe in Jesus. He's the greatest. You'll be better off. No, no. There was emotion. There was passion behind what Paul... You, you could tell Paul really believed in what he was saying and what he was teaching and what he was communicating. 
And God wants to see that in us too. Not to be emotional for emotional sake, but my goodness, if God has truly made a difference in our life, if God is making a difference in our life, if we truly have our life filled up with the vision of God, then there's got to be some kind of emotion to it because God made us emotional too, as well as rational. And God wants us to engage with him emotionally and engage with others emotionally too. We had a visitor on Sunday First time they'd ever been to the Oasis and they came up and he met me here and he said, one of the things he said, he says, is, well, you sure are passionate. And I said, I said, well, how can I expect others to get excited about God if I'm not excited? How can I expect others to be enthusiastic about my God if I'm not enthusiastic? And I think that's where Paul was. Paul was trying to convince his fellow Jews about, about Jesus and how important Jesus was to him and how important he should be to them. And there was emotion there. There was passion there, as there should be. God is certainly passionate about us. God is certainly emotional about us. As Zephaniah 3.17 reminds us of, he shouts over us, he sings over us. But then also notice verse 31. Very interesting the way this book ends. After Luke tells us that he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, it says he was doing so with all boldness and without restriction. Boldness there means openness. In other words, Paul wasn't holding anything back. Paul was letting it all out there. Like, look, again, I've been rejected, I faced rejection, and all that. And if you go back actually to verse 24 of chapter 28, Luke wants to tell us the response of the people that were listening to Paul, and it wasn't all negative. He says some people were convinced by what Paul said about Jesus, and they became believers. But others, notice verse 24, refused to believe. That's the way it is. When you and I share Jesus with others, or even with you know, fellow Christians sometimes. Some are going to be convinced and move more towards God and others are going to be, no, nope, not interested. That's just the way it is. That doesn't mean we don't share. That doesn't mean we don't put ourselves out there. But very interestingly, the very last word of the Greek text here in the book of Acts is the translation in the Net Bible without restriction. Literally, in the Greek, it's unhindered. That's the very last word of the book. Unhindered. Strange way to end. First of all, because we don't really know how the story ends. We don't know what happened to Paul. How long did he spend in Rome? What about his trial before Caesar? How did that turn out? We don't know. We don't know. I think there's one main reason why God ended this book so strangely. Because the story of the church that started in the book of Acts didn't end with Paul at the end of the book of Acts. The story is not only unhindered, it is unfinished. And you and I, who sit or stand in this room tonight, we are carrying on the story that was begun in the book of Acts. God is still writing his story on this earth. Now, instead of through Paul and others, he's writing it through us. 
And so I think that's why. God doesn't want this to end up in some nice, neat little bow and go, done. God wants us to understand, no, no, no. God is still building his church. And now, 2,000 years later, he wants to use us. But there's another thing that God wants his church to get as we end this book. And that is found in that word unhindered. You think, wait a minute, unhindered? Paul's a prisoner. Paul's chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. If people want to see Paul, they have to come to him. He can't go anywhere. He can't travel. What do you mean unhindered? Yeah, unhindered. Because God wants his people to see something here. And that is that too often, as Christians even, we look around at what we don't have, what we can't do, with lack of resources and all of this, and somehow we limit our ministry based upon earthly, temporal, physical things. And God says, are you not connected to me, the Lord of hosts, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills? Then if you just plug yourself into me, no matter what limitations or restrictions or whatever you think are on you, you are living without hindrance because if I want people to hear you or see you, I'll bring them to you if you can't get up. And if you don't have this, that's okay. If you really needed it, I would make sure as the God who supplies all our need according to his riches that you'd have it. If you don't have it, then that means you don't need it. You just need to keep looking at me. That's what's implied and taught in the word unhindered. Is it even though we might think, oh my goodness, Paul's ministry was limited because he was in a sense under house arrest when he got to Rome. God said, no, not at all. I just, I brought him to Paul instead of Paul having to go out to them. And that's what we see there at the end in verse 31. It says, Paul welcomed all those that came to him and he was there for two years. And that's all we know. For two years, his house was flooded with people who came to Paul that God drew to him. So what God wants his people to see in all of this is don't limit what God can do or what God wants to do in and through your life by looking at you and what you have or what you don't have, or what you can do or what you can't do. Again, going back, let God be the one to define it. Let God be the one to direct it and realize that when you and I, like Paul, connect ourselves to the unconquerable God, we become unconquerable as well. And we express an unconquerable love and an unconquerable hope. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight for this amazing book and how God encourages us, your people, to just stay connected to you as you build your church and do not allow the gates of hell to prevail against it. God, may your people just fill our vision with you. May, as we sung tonight, look to you, God. And remember that every step of our life, everything we're involved in, God, when we invite you to be a part of it or when we follow your invitation, God, there's nothing that can stop us. We might go through storms. We might even have a shipwreck or two in our life. But nothing can stop a child of God when we are connected to the unconquerable God. 
So Lord, encourage your people tonight. May we be strengthened, may we be encouraged, may we be refreshed, and Lord, even refined tonight through our study of your word and through our worship time tonight. And God, I pray that you would excite your people here at the Oasis about this new series that's going to start next Wednesday in this great book of Ephesians, a book that Paul wrote during those two years that he was under house arrest. So in a sense, we're going to just continue the story in a way beginning next week. And God, would you bring us all back on Sunday as well, once again, to learn how to lean into you and and just gain more and more of you, Lord, each and every day. Prepare our hearts, God. Give us a wonderful holiday tomorrow with family and friends. Keep us all safe, God. For those that are traveling right now, be with them and bring them back to us safely. And God, may we just walk with you each and every step of the way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys for being here. We'll see you next week.